Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishben, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Aaron Takach-Tesman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, we look at how COVID-19 has affected patient groups. We also look at a campaign by biopharma executives related to the new voter law in Georgia, and in the wake of AACR, the landscape for synthetic lethality-based therapies, and Tango and Cash, sadly not the Stallone, Kurt Russell flick from way back when, but we're talking about the latest SPAC deals. But first, the BioCentury team is prepping for our 21st BioEquity Europe conference, which will be an all-digital event scheduled for May 17th to 19th. More than 130 presenting companies selected by BioCentury, plus a McKinsey executive report on European biotech and over 15 strategic panels on Europe's next act. And wait, there's more. Our 10th CEO workshop led by the Roche Venture Fund. You can register and view the full schedule on our website, bioequityeurope.com. Steve, last week, and actually you've been chatting up leaders at various patient groups for a few weeks now. I know you spoke to the new CEO of the National Health Council. That's an umbrella group that represents chronic disease patient groups across the U.S. You spoke to the head of the Canadian Spinal Research Organization, as well as leaders at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society about how COVID-19 has affected patient groups. What did you hear from them? Basically, some of the groups have been devastated. The pandemic shut down their ability to hold in-person events, the kind of walks, the runs, the dinners that were really important for them, not only for fundraising, but for building communities and raising awareness. And some simply haven't been able to replace the events with virtual versions. Other groups, especially the large ones that have professional management and longstanding ties to donors, have done okay. The National Organization for Rare Disorders, NORD, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, they've pivoted to online fundraising. But groups like the Canadian Spinal Research Organization, they experienced a 70% slide in its revenues. The Muscular Dystrophy Association's revenues were down 50%. Other groups that I spoke with or looked at their annual reports experienced 25, 30, 15% slides in their fundraising. It's really devastating for groups like that. So, Steve, are the groups that you just mentioned, is their money going into generally funding projects for or grants, whatever, for new therapeutic ideas? And so my question really is the lack of funding. When does that start to impact and where does it start to impact drug development? I think it it already has and it will across the board because these groups, some of the funding that's been cut was funding that would have gone into startup companies. For example, uh, Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy's head, Pat Furlong, told me that they've had to slash their investment in startup companies that had good ideas for DMD drugs. Some of the money was used for patient groups that interact with companies that help them on things like patient preference studies or creating patient registries. Really, these patient groups have been, over the last 10 years, completely integrated into drug development, especially for rare diseases. So 
anything that hurts them this much is going to have an effect on drug development. It may be hard to put your finger exactly on what that effect is, but if you believe in the first place, like I do, that these groups have come to be really important partners in the development of new therapies, then anything that hurts them to this extent, these groups that are experiencing 50 and 70% cuts in their revenues, it's going to hurt the development of new drugs. It's going to hurt patients, and it's going to hurt the companies that are trying to bring new drugs to those patients. One more question I have. I agree with you. I think patient advocacy, patient groups and foundations are now a cornerstone. They're a standard part of the biopharma ecosystem and play a very important role. I think to some people, it might be counterintuitive. Something you wrote in the story is that they're turning to governments to get some government support for their work. And in some cases, that could sound to people counterintuitive because why doesn't the government just fund its own projects through its regular government-funded things like NIH or the MRCs in the UK? So can you just spell out what the vision is for how turning to governments should interweave, let's say, or interlace with what governments are doing already? Well, I think that the, one of the important points is that these groups aren't just funding research. A lot of what they're doing is bringing the patient perspective to the regulatory process, to the design of endpoints, to creating patient registries, things that governments can't do without patients. I think that's a critical part of it. Another thing is that a lot of what they're asking for from governments isn't directly funding. They're asking for that also, but they're also asking for incentives that will make it more attractive for individuals and companies to donate to to patient groups. Is there a role for biopharma companies in helping support these groups through this time, either as companies or as trade associations? There is, but it's also always a delicate issue because the money has to be given in ways where there are no strings attached. Even when that happens, there are always going to be accusations that companies are engaged in some kind of pay for play or conflict of interest. But of course, there are roles for companies. One of the advisors who I quoted in the story suggested that companies pick up the phone and call the patient groups in their space and ask them how they're doing, what their needs are, whether they're one of the groups that are experiencing these devastating reductions in revenues or if they're doing okay. The Biotech Innovation Organization, Bio, has created a fund to help the tiniest of the mom and pop groups. They're going to be giving out really small grants with no strings attached to hundreds or thousands of little tiny organizations. That's probably going to help them a little bit. And I think it'll also buy a certain amount of goodwill for the industry. Well, this is definitely something we've got to keep our eyes on as patient groups play such a critical role in so many aspects of the biopharma ecosystem. Let's turn to Georgia. Biotech leaders around the country have joined Major League Baseball and scores and scores of other companies in speaking out about Georgia's voting rights law. Steve, you spoke with Maria Thacker, head of Georgia Bio. How are Georgia biotech companies responding to this campaign? Just to back up a little bit, the letter that I reported on that 75 biopharma executives and investors signed wasn't aimed specifically at Georgia. It was aimed at what they call Mm -hmm. voter suppression laws. But of course, Georgia is ground zero for for the debate over voter suppression in the United States. The thing that I think where the rubber hits the road is that the letter called on companies to consider 
avoiding making investments in states that have passed voter suppression laws. And everybody, I think, who's interested in this topic believes that the law that was passed in Georgia is a voter suppression law. It called on companies to avoid making investments there. And when I spoke with Maria Thacker, who heads the State Biotech Trade Association, she said that she believed that this is counterproductive. She certainly is sympathetic to the principles that are outlined in the letter. She supports activities to fight against voter suppression, to encourage people to vote. But she said that real people in Georgia are going to be hurt by calls to limit investment in the state, so she can push back on it. When I spoke with Paul Hastings, the CEO of Encarta, who's going to be the next chair of Bio, he pushed back and he said, no, it's not counterproductive, that this is the way that you get states to pay attention. Also, he said that he personally didn't want to invest in a state where he felt that the employees wouldn't be encouraged to vote, that they wouldn't be able to participate in the democratic process. I spoke with Peter Kolchinsky at RA Capital, and he made a, a similar point. And he basically said that all else being equal, RA Capital is not going to invest in companies and states that passed laws that they consider to be suppressing the vote. Yeah, he said, if I had one here and one there in, you know, all else being equal, I, I would certainly invest in one where I didn't have concerns about voter suppression or I think what's important to think about is Georgia Biotechs and what they're trying to get off the ground there. That is relatively small compared with the amount of activity there that some other places that have also got voter legislation on the books, such as let's call Texas, where J-Labs is a big incubator. There's a lot of activity trying to create a, a biotech ecosystem there, not to mention Pennsylvania. Yeah. When you say on the books, it's legislation that's pending. It hasn't passed. It's before their state legislatures. Then the decisions that biopharma companies and then investors are going to have to make are going to be quite a different order. It's quite easy. And one of the things that Maria Thacker said to me is she said, well, none of the CEOs who sign on to that letter have got operations in Georgia. None of them have spent none a lot of, of time in the here, state. She said, right? none of, none, she said none of them live there. But what she also said to me, it's easy for them to say that because none of them really have much at stake. If and when laws that are judged to be voter suppression laws are enacted in states where there is a lot of biopharm activity, then it's going to be a much more difficult decision for companies and for investors. Yeah, I think what we might expect, though, is just to hear more and more about this. I think generally the role of corporations, not necessarily the role, but the alignment of corporations with particular issues is probably on shifting ground. And that is across the board outside of biopharma. And we've seen it at the level that Ken Fraser from Merck signed the letter that a bunch of big public company CEOs across many industries signed. I think this is a story that, at least for a little while, is not going to go away. The interesting thing about it, you mentioned the, the letter that Ken Fraser organized. That letter, which was splashed across two pages in the New York Times, committed these companies to support voter rights, but it didn't do what the biopharma letter did. It didn't actually call on them to take any actions in terms of investments or their corporate activities. It didn't threaten those states and it didn't threaten the companies or the governments that work in those states with any consequences if they didn't take specific actions. And I think that's where the biopharma letter went a step further than anybody else has done in these big public letters that the corporate CEOs have signed. And the biopharma letter did one other thing that is close to my heart. 
which is it asked for a, I think it was a half day off to allow people to vote, which personally, that's one of my things I think is really important. And I lived in a country where everybody got the day off on the day to vote. It's a national holiday and it's really a fun day, actually. Yeah. And it also called on companies to take other acts to help enfranchise their voters and the communities that they operate in. Pizza to the polls, people. I think we need a full day off. So yeah, yeah. Can you, I'm, can I'm you with bring that up day. with biocentry management? Yeah, I'll talk to them. I, I got this in the bag. All right. Let's turn to synthetic lethality. Now, coming out of AACR, which just wrapped last week, Karen is looking at what the picture for synthetic lethality-based therapies is at the moment. Karen, take it away. One thing that folks were pretty excited about coming out of last week's meeting was something from AstraZeneca, which has paved the way in that field quite a bit with the PARP inhibitors and had a number of programs in synthetic lethality following that. But one program that garnered a lot of enthusiasm was preclinical data AstraZeneca showed for its PARP-1 selective inhibitor. This goes beyond Olaparib, which targets both PARP-1 and PARP-2, removing that PARP-2 selectivity and focusing it just on PARP-1, which all of a sudden enables you to dial down toxicity and creates more opportunity for combination therapies, for going higher up the dose curve. A lot of folks were excited about that. Other things, in addition to ACR presentations, there were a couple of sort of splashy reveals in the synthetic lethality space in the last week or so. One development came from Repair Therapeutics, which finally unveiled the target of their mysterious program uh, for cyclone E1 amplified cancers. It's an interesting thing with synthetic lethality. You have sort of two targets in play. One is the genetic lesion in the patients, and the other is the molecular target of your therapeutic. The idea is that the patient's tumor can withstand the loss of function of one gene because it compensates with other pathways. But then if you pharmacologically inhibit another pathway, that causes the cell to die. That's the synthetic lethality. For cyclin one amplified tumors, they revealed their target to be PICMIT1, which is a relative of V1 kinase, and which they think is more selective in its approach and will also have less toxicity. The we one space was actually really a topic of discussion coming out of ACR. There was clinical data from Zentalis as well as AstraZeneca. One comment I got is that the we one space that's been in doubt for a while. Some first pass clinical data that came out wasn't so compelling, but there was a big push forward when AstraZeneca presented some data in uterine serous carcinoma last year. And then I got the comment that the data coming out of ACR really put more fuel into we one going forward. These were some of the exciting insights. Karen, a couple of things. First of all, I think synthetic lethality gets the best target names, pretty much. You know, you got mm. some um, favorites. Yeah. We one is pretty good. We we won, yeah. yeah pop, you know, some some good names there. The other thing is, and I know you're cooking something up, but just give us a sense of Synthetic lethality. By the way, it's also got the best name. I mean, synthetic lethality is really a very catchy name. It does beat a lot of the other ones, right? It um, does feel like it could be a Mel Gibson flick. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Mel Gibson, maybe we could get someone else in there, but okay. You know, yeah. yeah. For the upcoming movie, Karen, that Jeff will be starring in a leading role, what's the temperature of the synthetic lethality field? Obviously, there's 
AstraZeneca is leading one on the market, but what's coming up behind it? Are companies still as excited about this? Has it turned out to be more complicated? And let me just give a bit of background. I remember when the BRCA1 stuff came out, the first one was there. There was this idea of they stumbled across this in a way, and you have to look at it and go, God, there must be other combinations out there that do this, right? That and you know you can maybe explain better than I can exactly how synthetic lethality works, but combining two targets together could create new opportunities in this way. So, how was that borne out? Is it really as rich pickings as people thought it might be? One thing I did here is that the synthetic lethal interaction between PARP enzymes and BRCA is special because those two genes interact in multiple different pathways related to DNA repair. And finding as clean of a pairwise interaction between a genetic lesion and a target has been a bit of a challenge. But the space that definitely the target people are most excited about behind PARP is ATR. And this is something we reported, I think, out of the 2019 ASCO meeting. So that's still the case. People are looking at ATR inhibitors in ATM-deficient cancers as the next pair behind PARP and BRCA. The WE1 space has been interesting because while there was some sort of initial doubts and questions around it based on the first clinical data that came out, data in the last year has been providing momentum for that target, and that includes some data that was at AACR just now uh, from Zentalis and AstraZeneca in particular. But one thing that's interesting is this emerging theme of your one genetic lesion might not be enough to identify patients that are going to be sensitive to this inhibitor and that it's not going to be a pure synthetic lethal interaction between just two targets. One emerging idea is that replication stress, which is complex phenomenon characterizing when a cell is just cycling so fast that it's not doing a good job with its DNA repair, et cetera, that the state of replication stress might actually be a good hallmark for when a tumor cell might respond to these drugs and that it might actually be in the field's interest to collaborate pre-competitively like we've seen for the pdl one biomarkers and tumor mutation burden, MSI high, it might be in the field's interest to collaborate to identify markers of replication stress that can be used to reliably select patients. Karen, how much money is going into the space? Nucos, deals, Jeff, I think you're going to tell us about one. Farmers, what's the commercial activity in this space? Well, we saw four synthetic lethality deals, at least in 2020, some with big pharmas, Ardios and Merck, IDI and and JSK and Repair and BMS. We also saw Impact Therapeutics make joint venture with Junshi Biosciences. And then this year we saw another deal for Ardios with Novartis. We're definitely seeing pharma interest in partnering with synthetic lethality biotechs in addition to having some of their own programs. Merck in Germany is definitely a stalwart behind this pathway. Bayer as well, and AstraZeneca, of course. The pharma interest is definitely there and we've seen that play out in deals. Of course, we've got the big spec from last week. Jeff, you want to tell us about that? Yes, I do. That company is Tango. Back to the movie theme? Yeah, well, yeah, I I thought a little bit more about it. And I think I'm going to go with Michelle Yeoh as the star of my new film that I'm starting to work on. And I don't want to get too trendy here, but I'm going to go with Aquafina as we won. And Steve, I know you're a really big movie buff. I'll 
give you a short list of Michelle Yeoh's kick butt martial arts movies from back in the day. Before we turn to our deal and focus, if you missed our AACR coverage, do not worry. Go to biocentry.com, slip AACR into the search bar, and you will find a few killer pieces. Karen has a great piece on Next Generation DNA Damage Response Programs. Our colleague Lauren Martz wrote many, many stories. Her last one was about new targets that came out at the conference. And she also had a piece looking at how bispecific constructs are moving beyond T-cell engagers. And as I said, we've got several more. So check them out if you missed it. Our deal in focus, Karen, you set me up so well. Tango, a synthetic lethality company out of Cambridge, Mass., founded in, I think, 2017, said last week that it is merging with a SPAC sponsored by Boxer Capital. Now, a SPAC, of course, stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. It's basically a shell with money and some smart backers, usually. It provides a faster, less risky path to market. So does, so does that mean you can say that the companies that are involved have been spackled? Spackled, yeah. Spackling. Yeah, that's good. I might have to work that into a headline later today. So this deal gives Tango over $350 million to work on its synthetic lethality programs. That comprises $167 million in the SPAC's IPO proceeds and nearly $200 million through a pipe from Specialist investors, as well as Tango's partner, Gilead. And And go ahead, Karen. Well, one of the things that was interesting when that news came out is they also gave more of a peek into their pipeline. They had been discussing their lead program before, which was a PRMT5 inhibitor in MTAP deficient cancers. PRMT5 is outside the traditional DNA damage response pathway that's often implicated in synthetic lethality. But here it's this interesting interaction where in patients whose tumors have inhibited an enzyme that blocks a metabolite. In addition to their PRMT5 inhibitor, they came out and said their next program is a USP1 inhibitor. It's a protein that's involved in the unfolded protein response normally, but it's actually been shown that it has a role in protecting replication forks, which sets it up for a good synthetic lethal interaction with BRCA1 mutations. So it was interesting to see a bit more about their pipeline as part of the release. Do they have any data at AACR? You know, they had an abstract about an immuno-oncology pathway that they probed with their CRISPR-based pipeline, but not on these programs specifically. Right on. Well, the other company to do a SPAC deal is, I'll try not to butcher this name, Surozen. They are a five-year-old tissue repair and regeneration company out of my neighbor, South San Francisco. And they are merging with a SPAC affiliated with Consonance Capital. The company is preclinical and via this deal, it got about 200 million The Column Group was one of the investors. And so these two deals bring to at least 22 the number of life sciences SPACs that we've seen this year. 
In the past 15 months, that's the period at which this SPAC boom began. We've had over 60 healthcare-focused SPACs. And I got to say, it's going to take a lot of mergers to fulfill expectations for all of those SPACs. I'm starting to think of it as a game of musical chairs where at some point, somebody's going to be left holding the SPAC and they might get spackled, Steve. I can see that as long as this trend keeps going, we're going to keep suffering these really bad puns. So for me, I'd be quite happy if it's a fad just for that point of view. But obviously, I wish them all the best. Simone, if you check with BioCentury's HR department, you'll see that it is written into my contract and Steve's contract that we are compelled to make many bad puns. It's And the Phuket office will be better for it. Phuket. Everybody says Phuket. It's Phuket. And it's going to be... Some people say it another way altogether. Biotech sector's got to come in hot so we can pull that off. There will be some delicious pakrapao mu on me if it does. All righty. That's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. And don't forget to go to our website, bioequityeurope.com to view the full schedule for our upcoming Bioequity Europe conference and see which of the 130 presenting companies you are most stoked to check out. Catch you next week.